0: Hello and welcome to Byline Radio. This is What the Papers Don't Say, with me, Adrian Goldberg. Today, 800 British workers sacked by P&O ferries while their French counterparts keep their jobs, the kind of Brexit bonus Farage and Co. didn't tell us about. We're going to be talking about Evgeny Lebvedev and why the story of his links to Boris Johnson have taken a decade to emerge into the mainstream And Child Q, the really disturbing story of a black schoolgirl strip-searched and even forced to remove her tampon By the police. What does that tell us about the reality of race in the UK today? As always, we want you to join in as well. If you've got a contribution to make to the debate or if our discussion prompts a question that you want answered, just ask for a microphone. If you're listening live on Byline Radio, that'll be in the bottom left hand corner of your screen. And we'll try and get as many people on as we can between now and one o'clock. Before we get cracking, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio, which you're listening to now, is part of the Byline Times empire. And we are funded by ordinary people like you, not by oligarchs or by wealthy proprietors. None of that in the background, just ordinary people putting their hard-earned cash in to honest journalism. So to support us, please take out a subscription to Byline Times. You'll get a great monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. You'll also be supporting Byline TV, The Byline Times podcast, where this show is rebroadcast and where you might also be listening to it and as well as Byline Radio, you'll also help support our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe or take out a membership. That's at bylinetimes.com. Well, our thoughts go out today to the 800 workers who've fallen victim to a mass-sacking By P&O ferries, they were replaced by cheaper staff, many of them from overseas. Aside from the appalling human cost of these dismissals and the callous way in which they were carried out via video message, there are numerous disturbing strands to this story. Firstly, the apparent link to Brexit. Brexit, which, remember, was supported by the RMT Union, which represents many seafarers. The fact that Britain has left the EU is being seen by some commentators as a key feature in this story, with the suggestion that employment protection is weaker here than on the other side of the channel, where French workers have kept their jobs. P&O's parent company, the Dubai-owned DP World, has promised generous redundancy terms and says it has lost £100 million in each of the last two years. But that didn't stop them sponsoring the European golf tour, for 147 million quid, and it remains to be seen if their mass dismissals, in some cases enforced by handcuffed-trained security guards wearing balaclavas, is legal. MPs of all political stripes have been quick to condemn PNO, but the government's freeport initiative. Coming down the line promises more deregulation and last year, Conservative MPs talked out new laws designed to end the practice of fire and rehire, which sees workers dismissed and then re-engaged with less favourable pay. Or conditions. As I say, we're keen to get your contributions to this. Maybe you're at the protest today in Liverpool, one of the ports that is affected. Maybe you are a P&O worker. Maybe you've been subjected to fire and hire yourself. Maybe you can see. The merits, in P&O's case, in any event, we'd love to hear from you. Just tap the microphone on the bottom left of your screen if you're listening live on Byline Radio, and we'll try and get you on. In the meantime, let's get more from Adam Bienkoff. Adam is the Byline Times political editor and chief political correspondent. Adam, hello and welcome to Byline Radio. Adrian. Great to speak to you Adam and well as I say there are so many strands to this story aren't there obviously there is the human cost and that will be featured in in much of the mainstream media and I'm not meaning to downplay that in any way shape or form yeah. but we also have this kind of this Brexit dimension to the story.
1: Yes well that's right I mean I, I think I don't think you can clearly say that this is solely to do with Brexit or that this has only happened because of Brexit but it certainly is the case that employment law in the UK has been employment rights in the UK have been allowed to stagnate over a number of years successive governments that haven't been protected and we do know that that when Brexit was pushed through by the government that we were promised that this would enable us to actually strengthen our employment rights in the UK and to increase wages and increase opportunities for British people. Uh, Boris Johnson said in his conservative conference speech just last year that it would allow us to have a high-wage, high-skill economy. The Chief Secretary to Treasury, Simon Clark, also said that there is no going back from the fact that we have got to put an end to the reliance on cheap foreign labour, which is exactly why people voted to leave the EU. And of course, now we see that that's a completely dishonest position and we now can see quite clearly with this current scandal that Brexit has not led to a higher-wage, high-skill economy. It hasn't led to increased protections for workers and it hasn't stopped reliance on cheaper foreign labour. Indeed, the, the 800 members of, of British staff who have been let go this week, um, we understand they're going to be replaced largely, if not uh, almost entirely, by uh, labour from the EU and uh, elsewhere. So uh, and people and people will
0: point out that the P and O workers on the other side of the channel, the French workers, who of yes. course are protected by EU regulations, haven't lost their jobs. Now, as you say, it may just be it may be simplistic to say that the UK workers because we're out of the European Union, don't have that protection and the French workers do have that protection because, of course, they're still in the EU. But nevertheless, there is a striking difference between one group of workers here in the UK and another group of workers in France.
1: Yes, I mean, it does appear to be the case. I mean, it is somewhat unclear exactly what percentage of workers uh, actually on the boats came from France and elsewhere and what percentage were in, in the UK. It's also it's also unclear exactly what law applies um, the, the one suggestion is that the, part of the reason why PNA may, may be doing this is, is they're relying on maritime law rather than UK law in, in some aspects. And actually, it appears that the government are quite confused about this. Uh, ministers asked this morning, couldn't give a clear answer on whether or not uh, any employment law had been broken down the street this morning, similarly saying that they're looking into the matter. They think there's a couple of areas where they believe the law might have been broken, uh, particularly on giving notice. Um, under em- UK employment law, they have to give ministers 45 days' notice before doing the, the before going into insolvency or mass redundancies, and employees themselves have to be consulted, given 30 to 45 days' notice. Of course, that wasn't given. Um, Downing Street said yesterday that they weren't aware of it at all before it was announced. That doesn't seem to be true. Actually, we now know that the Department of Transport were informed the day before. Um, of course, the day before is not 45 days before, so that possibly could leave the door open for some legal action by the government. There's certainly going to be a lot of political pressure on the government to do something about this, um, particularly given the fact that p has benefited a lot from government help over the last couple of years. Um, they received £150 million in in, in a furlough money from the government um, and there's going to be pressure to pay back but of course we know that the the furlough money was largely given with no strings attached I think I don't think it's very likely that we'll see much of that money or any of that money really coming back to us
0: Well indeed no I mean if the money's given with no strings attached it seems yes. to me it's very little the government can do but there is also isn't there the, the criticism that will be levelled at, at ministers and MPs who rail against P&O here that really they are looking both ways at once they want these jobs Mm. they say they want this high wage high skilled economy at the same time when last autumn moves were brought in in parliament to try and restrict fire and rehire which has become an increasingly common practice amongst employers yes MPs under pressure from the government under pressure from the whips talked it out and they said that they would prefer guidance for employers rather than laws well guidance has no legal power does it
1: well this is i mean this is the difference between rhetoric and actual substance of what the government is doing so the rhetoric is that brexit is going to give us uh, a high wage economy and it's going to free us up and allow us to have stronger rights for british workers the reality is quite different and when actually uh, the labor mp barry gardner brought forward his private members bill last year to actually strengthen uk the work the rights of uk workers uh the government talked it out um and you know it's it's the same with the the government the, the, they say one of the big benefits of brexit is to uh, these new free ports that they're they're bringing in well one of these free por- ports the london gateway port is actually owned by the the company which owns PO, um which has now sacked 800 workers and, of course, it's worth saying that that same company, a, a Dubai-based um, property fund, which, of course, Johnson visited the UAE this week, um, they paid out. Yes, they say that they, the, the business is losing 100 million, but they paid out 270 million pounds worth of dividends to shareholders uh, over the course of the pandemic. So there there is a big gap between what the government is saying uh, when it comes to what Brexit can achieve and what they're willing to do to protect British workers and actually the reality of what they they're doing.
0: And one of the advantages of these so-called free ports. I know some people have been questioning the language around this saying that officially they are charter cities but I've been looking at some of the government Mm -hmm. documentation around this and the government do refer to them in official documents as free ports and we had free ports previously in the UK going back to the uh, recession of the 1980s and the the whole idea is is that companies can operate within the free ports in a, a low tax low tariff area kind of effectively hived off from the rest of the UK's regulation and that that deregulation, which presumably also extends to workers' rights or possibly extends yeah. to is one of the things that makes freeports attractive to employees. So you can't, on the one hand, it seems to me, reasonably say we want to protect workers' rights and get into a huff and a puff about this horrible job dismissal and then say we want to introduce more deregulation
1: through the well, freeports. I mean, when this is the logic of, of Brexit, I mean, and where the rhetoric does differ from the substance is that there there is no purpose i mean that brexit is, is essentially you're sort of placing sanctions on your own country and that you're sort of making it harder to trade with your neighbors the only kind of logical justification for going through it from the government's perspective is to make it easier to deregulate uh, industry and to, to sort of essentially turn the uk into sort of singapore and, on thames and relax employment rights, relax uh, regulations on on food standards, et etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's the only and and by that logic that the 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 overall economy would grow faster. That that's logic. That's the only kind of logical justification for doing it. Um, but at the same time, as doing that, the rhetoric is completely the opposite. No, we're not going to relax regulations. We're not. We're going to protect workers. We're going to make this a higher wage um, uh, economy. But of course, we know that if you relax. Uh, employment regulation what happens is that wages tend to be suppressed and that's what's happened in this case it's very easy for pno to sack these workers there's some questions over the legality of it but they they'd be able to do it and they probably they their lawyers have probably probably believe that they are able to do it and there, there may be some they may have to go through the tribunal process and have to pay out compensation but they believe it's worth that overall in terms of the amount of money that they've saved and the, the reality is the government aren't like i mean th- this may change because of this scandal they may be under pressure to bring in some new legislation to protect workers but when it actually came to the crunch last year and they had the opportunity to increase regulations and increase protections on for workers they they at the prospect and didn't do so
0: yeah well indeed, and uh, it, it's hard to say philosophically where the johnson-led conservative party would want to introduce greater worker protection as i say the logic of the freeport and rishi sunak Mm. has hymned this really hasn't Is that we'll have less regulation i mean the idea that you can the idea that you can talk out the end of fire and rehire the idea that you can embrace deregulation the freeport and then say this is terrible what's happened to these workers i it, it, say it's got to strike any independent observer as pure crocodile tears
1: and and this is also the sort of ideologically this is what the conservative party has been committed to for decades is to reduce regulations and p- reduce protections for workers i mean they wouldn't frame it in that way but that that's that's logic of, of what i mean uh, several members of the cabinet wrote famously wrote a pamphlet about all of this called Britannia Unchained, which set out, you know, that the British workers, in their words, were the laziest in the world, and and the the economy needed to be radically deregulated in order to make it more productive. Um, from their perspective, that would lead to big uh, to the economy growing faster and, and bigger profits for for companies. But the the flip side of that is less protections for workers, um, and more likely that things that we've seen this week with PNO are more like, going to be more likely to happen.
0: Yeah, one or two people pulling out an article from 2017 Mm -hmm. featuring, uh, I think he was then the International Trade Secretary, Liam Fox, and one of the key supporters on the Tory right of Brexit, saying it's, it's ridiculous to think that Brexit is about anything other than Being more deregulated saying his whole thing was that uh, the employment cycle and the industrial cycle, the economic cycle is just that it is cyclical so that when things are on a downturn, bosses are going to want to let workers go and that we should be making it easier. For that to happen. So again, one of these things, and we're going to come to the Lebedev thing very shortly, which, <laughs> yes. which I know is your specialist subject, but yeah, you know, one of these things that's happening in plain sight, Nigel Farage on Twitter today complaining about their 800 job losses and saying Brexit was meant to mean uh, higher pay and more jobs for British workers. Well. In what universe Hmm. was this not going to happen? Because if Britain seeks to gain a competitive advantage against its neighboring European countries, how can it do that? Well, the one obvious and simple way you can do that is by having weaker employment laws, which make it easier to fire and ultimately perhaps rehire on lower pay Workers, or maybe yeah. get those workers in, as in this case, by exploiting loopholes. Even though these are many going, you know, many of the workers are going to be overseas workers. You can exploit loopholes in maritime law and seafaring law to bring in workers from overseas. But this was going to happen.
1: Yes, and of course, Nigel Farage said uh, prior to Brexit. You know, if this all turns out to be a disaster for the British people, then then I'll I'll be off. But I think I think you know you you do. This is where you have to sort of pay attention. To not to what um, the government and conservative MPs are saying about this in terms of rhetoric. I mean, we've had lots of outrage in the last 24 hours about this. A conservative MP is saying this is, and the government ministers saying this is unacceptable. Well, it's very easy to say something is unacceptable. Why aren't you, why are you going to accept it? And when we've asked Downing Street in the last 24 hours, what are you actually going to do about this? You get very little in terms of a response. Um, We were told this morning uh, by Boris Johnson's spokesman that they're looking into legal means, legal addresses. Um, They're considering, they need to find out more about what's happened. Um, They're all, there are things that are under review. But actually, in terms of concrete action, yes, I mean, it's only been, as as, as you
0: were saying that, Adam, I'm thinking Downing Street might as well just put out a press release saying yada, 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 quite. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And, you know, uh, and this isn't the, the, this is obviously a particularly egregious example of the higher and um, fire and higher uh, uh, situation that has continued to grow over recent years but there's been lots of other cases of this happening in, in other industries probably n- not as as blat- glaringly obviously a sort of moral as this case and so blatant so many people being fired at once without consultation but this is a known practice this the government has known about this situation for a long time and as we say they did talk out uh, an attempt to sort of tackle it. Um, so, so the things to look out for in the next few days is is what actually, you know, it's all very well saying, oh, let's have a review. Let's, you know, let's look at possible uh, legal action we can take against uh, P&O in this instance. What are you actually doing to change the system that allowed this to happen in the first place? And so mm-hmm. far, we haven't really seen much. At, we haven't seen anything at all to, that would actually tackle this.
0: Just a reminder, you're listening to Byline Radio. I'm Adrian Goldberg and I'm joined today by Adam Bienkoff. Adam is the Byline Times political editor and chief political correspondent. If you think there's something missing in our explanation of this, by the way, if you think we're being unfair to the government, by all means do join in. If you're listening live on Byline Radio rather than to the rebroadcast on the Byline Times podcast, there is a little microphone icon in the bottom left of your screen. At least if you're on your phone, there is. And if you tap on that and uh, I give you permission. You can join in our conversation. So we're keen to get as many voices and as many different perspectives on this as possible. Maybe you've been directly affected by this situation, at P&O, or by something similar as well. Or maybe you think we're being unfair To the government, either way, we'd love to hear from you here on Byline Radio. And just a reminder that we're part of the Byline Times empire, for want of a better word. You can support the Byline Times by taking out a subscription or a membership. A subscription starts at as little as £39 a year. You get a brilliant monthly newspaper, the Byline Times. You also help support Byline Radio, the Byline Times podcast, Byline TV, as well, and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. dot com. That's where you will find. Details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now, Adam, you've played a, a key role in exposing the long-standing relationship between Boris Johnson and the newspaper proprietor, Evgeny Lebvedev, son of a KGB agent, of course, though we shouldn't yeah. judge people on their parents, uh, a peer of the realm, Baron Lebvedev of Hampton in the London borough of Richmond-on-Thames. <laughs> And of Siberia in the yeah. Russian Federation to give him his full total. <laughs> he
1: he no had means. asked for, for Moscow to be his title, but that was denied by the Kremlin, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> said, in no, despite initial warnings, anyway, from the
0: security services that the could be, concerns about him. And you followed this story in all of its intricacies. And why yeah. do you think the Lebedev story, which has kind of gone mainstream in the last week or so, and which I know you featured on Radio 4's media show talking about, why has it taken so long to leak maybe from the pages of the Byline Times mm. into the mainstream media?
1: Well, I mean, I've been covering this story for um, around 10 years now. Um, I, I first, when I was covering City Hall, um, I noticed in the transparency declarations that there was this strange declaration that Johnson had been gifted a holiday to Italy on behalf of Eveny Levdev, who at that point um, had only been in charge of the Independent Standard and, and the Independent for a, for a couple of years. He, he bought both papers for a pound each. Um, and it didn't really get a lot of pickup at the time. Even when it became clear that this was becoming a sort of annual um, trip that Johnson was taking to Italy to stay with Lev. I thought it was a sort of fascinating story, and and um, and it, lots more details came out, out gradually over the years. Um, we later found out that he had attended one of these parties, one of Leve's parties in Italy in 2018 when he was Foreign Secretary, and he has ditched his security team in order to, to attend there um we know that his uh lebedev's father the former kgb agent alexander lebedev attended some of these parties um and it's a it's a it's a fascinating story and you'd think from the outside from the outside you'd think that there'd be a lot more it's kind of perfect for the newspapers you think there'd be a huge amount of coverage of it involving mi5 and mi6 involving celebrities royalty uh, in fact um Involving the prime minister turning up drunken uh, to uh, Italian airport, being spotted by other passengers. There's all kind of sort of fascinating details to this story. You think it'd, it'd be sort of perfect tabloid fare, really, and that there'd be a huge amount of coverage um, over the years. You'd get every every new development will be covered extensively, and that just hasn't been the case. And you've got to wonder why that is, really. Um, I mean, I think part of it may be there is a sort of nervousness um, among journalists about covering wealthy Russians in the UK for perhaps obvious reasons. Certain oligarchs um, have been, do have a tendency to use their immense wealth to clamp down on criticism and scrutiny of their activities using the UK libel courts. Of course, it's worth saying that Boris Johnson has encouraged that when he was mayor of London, he actually uh, gave a speech saying that he would like more Russians to come over and use our, our courts. So I think that's that's possibly part of it. Another part of it is, of course, he is a big employer of journalists himself. Uh, he owns the New Standard and the Independent. He, he directly employs a lot of journalists. And a lot of other journalists have either worked for those papers or would like to work for them in future so I think that that may explain some of the reluctance to talk about this also he's he's a very connected guy he has a lot of friends in power including the prime minister it has to be said um all of these factors think together have kind of doled the coverage um beyond what they they you know it really deserves I believe yeah. Uh, when we were talking about this
0: uh, a couple of days ago on Byline Radio and on the Byline Times podcast, I drew attention to a very spirited defense of himself by Evgeny Lebedev about a week ago mm. in the Evening Standard. And, you know, he made the point that he's British. You shouldn't just judge him by his foreign-sounding name that has been a great support, supporter of charitable causes in the UK and so on. So I suppose it does beg the question, notwithstanding the mystery perhaps, which you've done something to explain of why the story hasn't attracted greater attention over the years, I suppose the bigger question then is why does this matter? Can we link any nefarious activity to Levvedev, to Johnson, and to their relationship.
1: Well, of course, you know, he is—he has become a, a British citizen, and he is not his father, as you as you rightly say. However, all of his mummy, uh, all of his money does come from his father. It's worth saying, and yes, he has, within the last week or so, um, put out a couple of statements uh, condemning Putin and his actions in Ukraine. However, it's also worth saying that for the last decade, his line on Russia and Putin has been very different. And when it came in uh, following the invasion, uh, Putin's invasion of Crimea uh, in 2014, he was actually uh, defended the actions of the Russian government. And he has written pieces uh, in, in two, November in 2015. He wrote a piece um, saying that the UK should ally itself with, with, with Putin in Syria, interestingly, a few weeks later, Boris Johnson wrote an incredibly similar piece for the Telegraph, taking a very similar line. He's also sent tweets, uh, sent a tweet at one point, suggesting that the Litvinenko um, assassination may have been the fault of MI6. So I think, uh, you know, yes, it's certainly the case that he's he's condemned Putin in the last week or so. I think, given his position, it is be untenable for him to do anything else. But I don't think it's it's quite as sort of clear cut that he's this kind of anglicised Putin opponent um that that he he would like to suggest in the last week. And indeed, some of the letters that I uncovered for Byline Times last week show that he he actually boasted of his access to the Kremlin and to the Russian government and his ability to raise funds from them. Um, and other reporting has suggested that his father has also boasted of similar connections to the Kremlin. In terms of why this is a, a significant story, yes, of course, we shouldn't uh, focus on people just because of where they're from or just because they're very wealthy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but there are a couple of things here. First of all, uh, this money did not come out of uh, this. This the money that uh, Alexander Lebedev got. He got from the Russian people. Is essentially stolen it's the wealth of russia that he, he's stolen from the russian people um it, it's not it's not you know he didn't he didn't get it through his, his 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 own hard work um and the second the second reason it's important is because yes all newspaper proprietors do try and seek to influence the prime minister they don't tend to do so uh after the security services have repeatedly issued warnings about those individuals. And we know from the Sunday Times reporting last week that the concerns were raised right at the start of Johnson's relationship with Lebedev in 2010, that he may be a security risk. And we also know that when Johnson tried and succeeded in forcing through his peerage in 2020, 10 years later, similar concerns were raised again, that he may be a security risk. And I think that's the key point as to why this is a story. Yes, Prime Ministers often have relationships with newspapers Priorities and there's there's a back and forth of influence, which which I documented in the piece last week uh, with the letters between the, between them. What is different here is that there was clear security warning concerns raised by MI5 and MI6 about Evgeny Lebedev and his father and Johnson's relationship with them, and those appear and ha- this hasn't been denied by Downing Street. These appear to have been um, overturned by the Prime Minister in order to benefit his friend. So that there is a national security issue. And there is a kind of cronyism issue of, of Johnson's sort of overturning advice in order to help a personal friend of his. Yeah, and I
0: would refer listeners to Ekveni Lebedev's self-defense, as it were, in the Evening Standard. If you just put in Ekveni Lebedev Evening Standard, you'll find that article online. But I'd also refer people to your article at bylinetimes.com, headlined the Johnson-Lebedev letters, because it really does build up in incredible detail the, the kind of close links between the two men and, of course, we have to be mindful, don't we, in a democracy of the influence that people have and the debts, perhaps, that people owe, the debt that Johnson owes to Lebedev, and, as you say, the debt that Lebedev has ultimately to the Russian people who, uh, one way or another, funded his purchase of two influential newspapers in this country, The Evening Standard and The Independent. And I suppose it's that for me is where this story gets really grey, but an interesting kind of grey, because what does Johnson owe Lebedev for his backing? The Independent and The Standard are not the only papers that have backed Johnson, of course, but you would think there is a, a, a sense of gratitude, if nothing else, from Johnson for that backing. But then, what is what is Lebedev expecting in return, and it, 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 and what who are the people that he owes allegiance to, and is there any link between him and Vladimir Putin and his his broader agenda? And uh, as you say, based on the published evidence, there is some suggestion that for well, whatever reason, Lebedev has been supportive of Putin in the past,
1: and we know um, that when it comes to Russian oligarchs. You, you are. When it comes to Russian oligarchs and Putin, you are either with him or you're against him. If you are with him, you're allowed to carry on in your position and your position is protected in some respects by the government. If you are against him, then you are, you're in a world of trouble, as we have seen with what's happened to some of the exiled oligarchs, including in, in the UK. Um, so, yes, uh, Alexander Lebedev did clearly have a falling out with Putin at, at some points. Um, but that seems to have changed. As, as John Sweeney has written for Byline Times, there seems to have been some sort of reproachment in in recent years between them. We don't know what you know. We don't know exactly what the terms of that were. But it's it's clearly the case that you know he, the Lebedevs are not straightforward Putin critics um, or opponents of Putin. If, if they if they were, they wouldn't have been able to maintain their wealth and their position in, in the way that they have done.
0: Yeah, and there's also this situation with Johnson where questions are asked about his lack of interest, his lack of curiosity about possible Russian interference in the EU referendum, for example, drawn Mm -hmm. attention to both by the DCMS, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee, and then again by the Joint Intelligence and Security Committee of MPs, cross-party committees, both of those, posing questions about possible Russian interference, Johnson has been the least curious minister and then prime minister that you can imagine about possible meddling. And you would think, wouldn't you, that if any foreign country was trying to interfere with British democracy, that would be of interest to the man who now uh, has the keys of the door to Downing Street. Not a dicky bird.
1: I mean, not only is he he sort of indifferent to it, he's sort of actively opposed attempts to find out uh, about russian interference of course the the russia report by the intelligence parliament's intelligence and security committee was prepared well in advance of the last general election and johnson actively sought and succeeded in suppressing its publication until long after that election had taken place and when it did finally emerge downplayed massively downplayed its findings and sat on it um for a further year and it's only now that putin has invaded uh ukraine that we're seeing any attempts to kind of clamp down on Russian interference in the in the as the intelligence and security committee said in the statement this week the government has sat on this report for two years and done nothing why has it taken this for anything to be done at all and Johnson himself has been not just indifferent in, ter- in terms of money in, in Russia but he's been actively championed uh Russian oligarchs in the UK um indeed and one article he he wrote in I believe it was 2013, he, um, he suggested that the richest people in the UK, including Russian oligarchs, should be given, in his words, automatic knighthoods um, for the amount of money that they bought into the UK. So, you know, it doesn't get more pro-oligarch and pro-Russian wealth <laughs> than has been in, in the last 10 years. <laughs>
0: Indeed not. Adam, great to speak to you. Thank you for joining us. And you can read Adam's great work in the Byline Times. He's the Byline Times political editor and chief political correspondent. Read the best of his articles in the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Read him regularly on our website as well, bylinetimes.com. Thanks for joining us, Adam. I hope we get you back again on Byline Radio soon. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Adrian. There you go. There's uh, Adam Bienkoff, as I say, so a terrific writer with real insight to what's going on in the world of politics and at Westminster. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to Byline Radio. You may be listening live now via Twitter Spaces. We're here every weekday between noon and one. But don't worry if you miss us live on Byline Radio via Twitter Spaces. We do try and put out every episode later on via the Byline Times podcast, which is where you might be listening to us as well. But the only way you can join in live is if you're listening to us on Twitter Spaces. But if you want to request uh, uh, the chance to join in, there's a little microphone icon, certainly if you're listening on your phone, down the bottom left of your phone and if you tap that you can request access and we'll try and get as many of you on as we possibly can don't forget to support byline times and all the work we do please take out a subscription to the byline times newspaper or even better a membership and that will help to support byline radio the podcast byline tv and our news breaking website bylinetimes.com which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com now, I want to talk about a really disturbing and troubling story. It's one that should disturb and trouble any of us, really, if we care about others in society. But it really struck home for me because I'm the dad of three girls, aged 17, 14, and 7. And I think, what if this had happened to my kids? This of course, is the story of Child Q. Now, Child Q is a black schoolgirl. I reference the colour of her skin because it may indeed be material. She was strip-searched in 2020 by police after being wrongly suspected of carrying cannabis Apart from the officers, there were no adults in attendance to support her, not her parents. And a safeguarding report has found that since this incident, when she was strip searched, she's changed, according to her family, from a happy-go-lucky girl to a timid recluse who hardly speaks. She now self-harms and now needs therapy. The report concluded that the search was unjustified and that racism was likely to have been a factor. Scotland Yard has said the officer's actions were regrettable and it should never have happened. Let's speak to Albert Kapoor. Albert is the senior policy manager at the think tank, the Runnymede Trust. Hi, Albert. Welcome along.
2: Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: No, listen, I know you are only on yesterday, but when, <laughs> when I started to get my head around this story, I thought, who better to kind of talk us through this? It's, a, it's an absolutely shocking story. For people who haven't heard it, Albert, what are the key facts?
2: I suppose I mean the real key fact here is that a traumatic search took place uh, in for in a school in Hackney in East London that affected a child uh, who was essentially taken into a room unsafeguarded, unsupported, and strip searched by police officers whilst she was on her period, and this was after being reported on. Uh, by her school teacher who accused her of smelling like cannabis honestly the details alone just even repeating them now it's just so utterly heart-wrenching to think that this is possible in a society like this in a school where people deserve to be protected to be cared for and yet a young child receives such dehumanizing and racist treatment from the police in this in this in this manner
0: and it's quite chilling. I did an interview for the By Nine Times podcast a few weeks ago with a young woman. She was an adult woman, um, Koshka Duff, who was strip searched mm-hmm. by the same local police force in London. And she waged an eight year campaign to get some kind of acknowledgement of the wrong done to her, her crime in inverted commas was that when a young man was being arrested she handed him a leaflet saying here are your rights and for that and then when the police arrested her she within her rights, said i'm not going to give you my name i'm not going to give you my address Mm -hmm. until i can see a solicitor until i can see a lawyer the police ignored that and strip searched her and issued um, a the, the kind of an apology but not one in which they acknowledged that they had done wrong and we've talked a lot on the podcast and on byline times alba over the recent months about the, the deeply embedded culture
3: mm-hmm. within
0: the metropolitan police of misogyny of which this could be an example of racism perhaps of which this could be an example
2: absolutely i mean even in the police's response to this to this unbelievably harrowing investigation, which affected, I think it's really affected a child. Um, Even their response to this, there hasn't been that recognition of institutional racism. What can be a clearer manifestation of racism embedded in the police force than a police officer dehumanizing and degrading a black child in this way? Um, And that is really where it comes sort of clear that this is something the police aren't willing to engage with yet, don't have the language to engage with, but also has a long history behind it. I mean, let's not forget uh, forget the sort of brutal racist conduct of police following the murders of Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman, um, or the way in which Black young women uh, who are who are who have suffered domestic violence feel unable to bring their cases to the police because they simply do not have the trust that they will be taken care of or supported. Um, this is, I mean, There was this research that came out from Sister Space that showed that for the women who um, have been a victim of domestic abuse or assault from African or Caribbean heritage, only about half said that they would ever report their assault to police. Such is the lack of confidence that the police speak for black and ethnic minority communities or that the police act in support of young black women in particular. And I think the other side of this that's just really important as well is that this comes, this this uh, this investigation comes as part of a broader and somewhat sinister and disturbing uh, issue with the number of police in schools. So there are over 650 police officers working in British schools today. They're sort of known as safer school officers. Um, and we've seen a number of cases in which There has been uh, police involvement in minor incidences in school that have a disproportionate effect on black and ethnic minority pupils and young pupils. Um, And so this the idea of police contact in schools, it's an increasing reality in our society and something that we should be highly concerned about, given the inevitable disproportionality of outcomes for black and ethnic minority young people and young children in the criminal justice system.
0: Yeah, very often the presence of police officers within a school setting, which is where this search took place by the way, mm. it didn't happen at a police station, Precisely. it was within a school setting. Very often this is sold as trying to build bridges between the community and perhaps amongst members of communities who've had good reason to mistrust the police to build bridges between those communities and police officers. Of course, incidents like this, far from building bridges, are more likely to to burn bridges, quite honestly. And it seems to me that the schools in which officers are situated tend to be schools which, and again, forgive me, correct me if I'm wrong, but tend to be schools which have... a a worse reputation for trouble and violence and so on. Um, They're not in nice middle-class state schools like the ones that my two older daughters attend.
2: I mean, the research that's been done, uh, there was a survey done in Greater Manchester that showed that safer schools officers or police officers in schools are much likely to be placed in schools with higher numbers of black and ethnic minority communities. Of, of communities who are Black and ethnic minorities, so Black and ethnic minority pupils. Um, so already we see in the numbers, it bears out that, uh, again, the same disproportionalities are, are repeated. When you increase the number of police anywhere, and specifically in schools, it is Black and ethnic minority communities who are going to feel the brunt of it. Um, and I just, I'm, I'm aware that there's sort of much more to discuss on this, but I think it's important to say that yesterday the government published its Inclusive Britain. Uh, plan which is in essence a sort of action plan in dealing with racism in our society and I mean it 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 certainly wasn't uh, in any way enough to root out any institutional racism within the criminal justice system but even worse than that it proposed um, more police in school as part of something called the mini police program to build trust in communities so that that's a programme that would involve engaging primary school students with the police at a really early age. So there's, there's still more coming out in this vein uh, in terms of more police and schools that we should be really concerned about.
0: Yeah. And uh, as I say, the, the rationale is often that of building bridges amongst mistrustful communities. But if communities feel that they are being disproportionately policed in school as well as on the streets, it, it's, it's only going to have the opposite effect.
2: Absolutely. And, the, and it, it, it cannot belong in schools. I mean, this, it's just unbelievable that we are in a place in our society where safer schools officers exist in this way and where these disproportionalities are not only playing out in the streets or the cities in which black and ethnic minority people live in, but also in the schools that they go to.
0: Another phenomenon of this is the, or another aspect of this phenomenon rather, is is what people describe as the adultification Mm -hmm. of black children, where black boys and black girls are seen to be older or treated like adults in a way, that white children are not?
2: Absolutely. I think this is something that has been a real part of the conversation, this adultification bias, uh, where in essence, uh, black children in particular are not given the same treatment as their white counterparts. Um, and we only have to read the way in which child cue was affected to understand what this bias really does. You know, she she speaks about having experienced self-harm, needing to go to therapy, becoming going, her her family talk about how she went from a happy-go-lucky girl to a timid recluse as a result of this incident. It's so profound. And it's so profound also because she was a child and the way in which uh, this this adultification bias feeds into how police engage with young black people is something that we urgently need to be discussing openly in a way that the police really owns and understands.
0: Really good to speak to, Alba. Thank you. Thank you. By all means, stay on if you want to. If you want to join in a bit later, it would be great to have you. If not, though, thank you either way. Thank you. powerful contribution. That's Alba Kapoor, who is Senior Policy Manager at the Runnymede Trust. Let's get comments now from Ava Vidal. Ava is a comedian, a journalist, an activist. Ava, hello. Welcome to Byline Radio. How are you?
3: Okay, thank you.
0: Yeah, firstly, I mean, just a a reaction, really, from your point of view to what happened to child Q. I
3: don't even know what to say. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious as a black mother how I would feel. Um, You know, it's just something that we're very, very sick and tired of. And in the black community, I haven't seen a reaction like this for a long, long time, where everybody is angry, everybody is pulling together. We are sick and tired of it. The adultification of our children doesn't start, sort of as teenagers, it starts in nursery schools. There's lots of people doing work around it. I mean, it's all, it has its roots in slavery, the legacy from slavery that people think we shouldn't still be speaking about, uh, where black children, were well, obviously not black children, they were put to work in fields as young as two and three. Um, you know, I don't know what else to say, really it's just very heartbreaking it's very disturbing and i would say misogynoir which is not just misogyny it's specific kind of misogyny that affects black girls and black women is at play here um not regarded as female enough not regarded you know as as young at all it's it's really sad
0: as you describe all that Ava my heart really sinks I feel sad and I feel angry and I think I recognize even as a middle-aged white guy I think I recognize what you're saying and we've spoken to Alba about the placement of police officers often with the rationale that it will help to build bridges with different communities within schools although as a Alba says very often there are disproportionate numbers of schools where there are large numbers of black and minority ethnic pupils. Is this something we need to look at? Do we need to get rid of the police from our school system?
3: A hundred percent. There's actually, um, I'll retweet it onto my page today. There's an organisation that's looking into doing that. You just don't um, build relationships in schools. You don't need to be in a school to build a relationship with the community, you need to stop over-policing, stop criminalizing our children, and stop targeting us. Um, I worked, um, I'm a patron of a charity called Stop and Search Legal Project, where we would go into schools and we would speak to young kids. um, And we would speak to kids maybe about nine, 10. These are like, majority say to them, do you think Stop and Search is a good idea? About ninety percent of them would say yes when you get to fourteen fifteen about ninety nine percent of them say no, and the reason it changes in those five years is because it's at that point they've had that first contact with the police and it's sad it's sad. I remember with my own son he's now you know he's in university, he's a big boy um, but as he was growing up it's it's the heartbreak on their face i mean. Eight, nine—they called him cute. By the time he got to ten, he was considered to be a threat. You know, people would act scared of him. They would jump when he was around. And you know, I remember being at the cash point with him, and some guy—like my son—was just playing around. He was literally like nine, ten, and this guy was like, "What's he doing? What's he doing?" I mean, he's a kid. He's waiting with me in the queue. What are you talking about? And it's just—it's just—it's horrible. And stop and search for anybody who's listening, who wants to say, oh, why, you You know, if you're not carrying anything, you shouldn't mind. It's just a stop. It's not that often stop and searches. Even the public ones on the street are um, humiliating. Uh, They are often very violent. They are also often accompanied by uh, racial abuse as well. And, you know, provocation. So, that's not what we're objecting to. And like with Child Q, most of these searches turn up nothing.
0: Indeed. I, I, it's just, you know, it, it, it's heartbreaking testimony that you're bringing to us, Ava, quite honestly. You've talked about the anger amongst the community. Uh, as I understand it, there is going to be there are going to be protests this weekend at Stoke Newington Police Station. Is that right? You want to tell us more about that?
3: Um, The ones I know of are, there's one by Copwatch today. It starts at four. There's another one that starts at five from Stand Up to Racism. So I'm assuming those two will just merge. There's also one on Sunday, um, which is centering black girls. Because often when we have these marches, um, we center black men and black boys. So the organizer to reflect that has actually... um, changed it to make sure that people know um this is centering black girls
0: and in terms of tackling the systemic issue here Ava, that you touch on which is i guess embedded... oh sorry
3: can i just add that, that yeah go one, on over yeah yeah that yeah. one on sunday starts at 1 p.m sorry i was just going through my stuff no,
0: that's all yeah right. it's and calling that, for that, dignity that's and that's education the police station yeah yeah yes and i guess in terms of tackling this you know because At some level, society has to move forward, but I don't want to put words into your mouth, but we are talking, I guess, then about challenging deeply embedded attitudes, racist attitudes that go back to the time of slavery and being honest about our past and being honest about how... People of colour have been treated in Western societies and by the UK historically. We just need to have an open and honest conversation, which so many politicians, particularly of the right, are keen to close down.
3: It's not just the right. I mean, Keir Starmer, up until this morning, last time I checked, has said absolutely nothing about Child Q. Um, Angela Rayner, who's constantly speaking about working class white boys in education, has said nothing about child Q. So the racism is also on the left. And I really need to make that clear because it it often manifests itself in a different way in almost look like, you know, look at what we've done for you people. Almost like we should be grateful for scraps, the assumption by Labour that we're going to support them no matter what they do and how they ignore our needs. Um, as well so yeah just to make that clear I mean it is deeply embedded in our education system and the way we've been policed constantly throughout um, our our time in this country the main bulk of the Caribbean community which I'm a part of came over um, in the Windrush um, on Windrush you know where that they call our parents the Windrush generation and we are first generation and now we're seeing a lot of us have got kids who are the second generation and sometimes even you know grandkids who are the third and nothing's really changed rogan production um did a documentary uh, they made a great series of documentaries um about black life in britain one of them was about the education system it was called subnormal and it was about just how many caribbean children were wrongly um called educationally subnormal They have been taken out of main education and they are put into uh, special schools. They, you know, it's so, it's heartbreaking when you saw them speaking about their lives. One of these guys has grown up to be a man who's just got degree after degree after degree because he's proving, you know, to everyone around him he's not stupid. After that, they began to sort of, um, you know, when our elders really argued against that, fought against that, we set up Saturday schools um caribbean schools there's places like hundred black men of london honeybees we have to to supplement what the government is doing to show our children that they matter when they finished doing that to our children uh, the main thing through the 80s was prus which is people with ref- uh, people referral units where they would say that we're a discipline problem um there's a activist called Stafford scott who did a um a show called war in the babylon and it was about the policing of the black community and how we have have fought back over it over the years and you know you have people who will come out blatantly and make racist statements and we're talking about senior police officers and i can't remember his name basically saying jamaican people are an unruly bunch they can't you know they have no discipline it's in, it's their culture you know, painting us as wild and loud and angry and all these kind of things. It's just, you know, up to Sky News um brought an ex policeman on who's a fan of Tommy Robinson. and he's saying it's because black people we have no discipline in our homes, we're all single mothers, with this, with that. You know, it's it's just constant. We've had examples of I think it's important to to centre black women for this because our stories don't often get told even with our own community. Um, You know, there's Joy Gardner, who was killed. She was a Jamaican woman. She was overstaying to go to university. Uh, Immigration burst in. They killed her. They choked her out in front of her six-year-old child. She's a beautiful, beautiful young woman, Cherry Gross, who the police took her son's key, let themselves into her house and shot her in her bed. And she spent the rest of her life in a wheelchair I mean, these things go on and on and on. It's just, it's horrendous and we're tired.
0: Ava, that's a really, really powerful testimony. I really appreciate your time joining us on Byline Radio today. Thank you so much for that. i am moved almost to tears listening to what you're saying. It's shocking and it's true. I just wonder if Albert Kapoor wants to add anything, Albert. I just, I just found that. Can so...
3: I just add quickly? Go on, um, go on, Ava. Yes, if sorry, you yeah. are a white person, you are moved by these stories. Just imagine if these were your children. Um, it's kind of not enough to say, "Oh gosh, we don't agree with that." Please, we're asking you to to put put your feelings into action as well, because it's going to take all of us. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ava. Thank you, uh, Albert, Did you want to say anything after that?
2: I, I really don't think there's anything to add to that. I think Ava, you've you've given such an important you've said so many so many important things about the way in which we should be thinking about this, and how especially for for people who who need to be part of this movement more, it's time to really start that anti racist work and and understand the history of what's been happening and how this stems from decades, if not centuries, of of oppression.
0: Thank you for coming on as well today, Alba. Really appreciate your time. That's Alba Kapoor from the Runnymede Trust. Really grateful as well to Ava Vidal, comedian, journalist, activist. Mum, really, really powerful stuff. Thank you to everybody who has listened. byline radio today please spread the word if you're listening on the byline times podcast please spread the word about the podcast as well we don't have a marketing budget so uh, i hope this podcast does go far and wide and i hope that ava's message goes far and wide as well really grateful to everybody for taking part just finally to say before we go we'll be back again on monday and every weekday between noon and one With Byline Radio, just follow us on Twitter spaces at Byline Radio. Or if you can't make that, then do please listen to the podcast at Byline Times Podcast. And don't forget to support the work of Byline Times by taking out a subscription or a membership. Find out more details at BylineTimes.com. Thanks very much indeed, everyone. See you all again on Monday. Good luck. Stay safe. And thank you. ta da!